From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Industry documents show that for decades, big tobacco targeted communities of color, and the effects are still being felt today. The untold story tells how the industry pivoted in the 1960s to what one company called poverty markets, an incredibly successful set of tactics that targeted Black communities ultimately. Black Americans have the highest death rate and shortest survival rate of any racial or ethnic group in the U.S. for most cancers. The tipping point was when states like Colorado and others sued the industry. And they sued the industry to recover the cost of caring for sick people, which was falling on state budgets. We'll get insight into why a proposal to ban menthol cigarettes has been stalled for years and what could happen now. Every donation to Colorado Public Radio makes a difference, but many listener members say they wish they could give more. If you are looking to get rid of a used vehicle but don't want the hassle of selling it, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. Donating your car is an easy way to add to your support of the programs you value. Make a difference and help fuel CPR by donating your unwanted vehicle. Just go to CPR.org and click on Support. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. For decades, there's been a battle waged across the globe, in the U.S. and, yes, here in Colorado, too. It's a public health crisis related to what's referred to as the leading cause of preventable death in the country, cigarette smoking. Back in the 50s, it was commonplace to see ads like this one touting even doctors smoking. Doctors in all parts of the country, doctors in every branch of medicine were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? In this nationwide survey of general practitioners, surgeons, throat specialists, diagnosticians, and so on, the brand named most was Camel. Earlier this month, the U.S. marked the 60th anniversary of the first Surgeon General's report on smoking and health. It found that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer and is linked to other serious diseases. That turned out to be a key turning point in the nation's fight over curbing tobacco use in this country. And that fight is still very much underway. So today might mark the beginning of the end of menthol cigarettes in this country, because just in the last couple of minutes, the FDA is announcing it's working on a proposal to ban them within the next year, along with all flavored cigars. That was an NBC report on the dangers of menthol. The Biden administration has been weighing whether to ban menthol cigarettes altogether. Research finds that they're easier to get addicted to and harder to quit than other tobacco products. And they've been disproportionately harmful to members of the black community in Colorado and nationwide. Today, we'll have a conversation with Princeton professor Keith Waylu, author of the book, Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette. We'll chat with him in a few minutes. But first, CPR health reporter John Daly has been covering tobacco's influence on the health of Coloradans. Here's a report from last spring about how Big Tobacco strategically targeted communities of color in our state, and the effects are still being felt today. At Manuel High, a diverse school in the heart of Denver's historically black Five Points neighborhood, a spoken word performance gets started. 
Up first to Kyra Miles, a senior and student leader. Little black boy, help the world understand. Little black boy, like grown black men. Help Social justice and equity, guns and racial bias are on her mind. I feel like young black women and young black men should have the luxury of growing old. And we don't really have that luxury, you know. Takira tells me she's considering going into health care, partly because of those things, but also due to a trend she sees in her classmates, vaping. Vaping is very common within students and just peers that I know inside and outside of school. I think it's just a thing to do. She worries about the long-term health impact. Have you tried it? Do you vape yourself? No, I don't, no. I just don't want to get addicted. Takira says not long ago, her grandmother Patricia died in her early 60s. Before she quit, she was a longtime smoker, which led to other health problems. She got put in ICU and they kept on saying like, your lungs are failing, your lungs are failing. And I think like if she didn't smoke, she would have came out of the hospital alive. Her grandmother's preferred choice, Newport, a menthol brand. Actually, growing up as a teenager, I didn't know nobody who did not smoke. That's Lawrence Miles to Kyra's dad. I've smoked Newports probably for the last 27 years. That's the same brand he saw his mom Patricia and other family members smoke. He remembers a lot of Newport ads on billboards, in magazines and newspapers. They would advertise them. They were, they were everywhere down here. They were the cheapest ones. So they knew that that was what we can afford. His wife, Takesha, has also smoked Newport since her days attending East High. Together, they developed a pack-a-day habit, she says. It's what everyone was smoking and has gotten everybody addicted to, and it's the menthol. Menthol is a cool, minty flavoring. It eases the harsh feel of cigarettes, making it easier to start. In the 50s, less than 10% of black Americans who smoked smoked menthols. Back then, companies could advertise on TV. Oh, smoother Newport, fresher Newport, smoother After TV ads for cigarettes were banned, the Newport brand and others targeted black communities with slick ad campaigns. Now, more than 85% of black smokers smoke menthol. Smoother, more refreshing cigarettes. Want proof? There's a website with 14 million once-secret industry documents released as part of a multi-state settlement. Type in Colorado or Denver, and pretty interesting stuff pops up. Like in 1981. I'm very happy to be talking to the NAACP's 72nd annual convention. President Ronald Reagan came to Denver for a convention for one of the nation's leading black organizations. There, companies handed out hundreds of packs of free cigarettes. Another document from the 80s shows one tobacco company picking out specific Denver locations for billboards for cigarette brands marketed to communities of color. Right now I'm at 47th in Colorado, which is a busy intersection near I-70. The document describes the area as a, quote, dense black neighborhood on the way to the airport. I drove over to another location in the Westwood neighborhood in southwest Denver. The document calls it a, quote, dense Spanish, as in Hispanic, neighborhood. It was selling 
cigarettes and selling the ideal of cigarettes to black kids. And Latino youth, says Princeton professor Keith Waylu. He wrote a book called Pushing Cool. It documents the way the industry aggressively promoted menthol by making it cool. The way in which menthol smoking became entrenched in poor communities, in black communities, is by design. Waylu says tobacco firms developed sophisticated campaigns and often employed community leaders. Waylu says it's part of the big tobacco playbook. They're not really speaking for the health and well-being of black people. They are entangled with the industry, and that's part of their strategy. They are influencers. Terry Richardson, a retired Denver doctor, has tracked this issue for years. At her home in Aurora, she pulls out cigarette ads from old issues of Ebony and Jet magazines. These are cool people. Look at that. I mean, you want to be those people. That messaging proved persuasive. Richardson would ask her patients who smoked what they smoked. The common reply, menthols. She saw the outcome of that smoking. We saw a lot of heart disease, saw a lot of cancers. Black Americans have the highest death rate and shortest survival rate of any racial or ethnic group in the U.S. for most cancers. Richardson works with the Colorado Black Health Collaborative. It's exploring ways to help people quit. It's harder to quit once you start menthol. So once people are addicted, then you have lifelong smokers. Back at Manual High in Denver, Lawrence Miles tells me he has a recurring cough and years ago had a lung collapse and a stroke. He and his wife, Takesha, are now trying to quit. For our grandkids, our kids, and just ourselves, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really addicting. Cigarettes is a killer. They attack your lungs. Definitely done their damage to the black community, and it continues to do it. His daughter, Takira, is just a few short weeks away from graduating, looking forward to college and possibly a medical career, where she'd bring a focus on health equity. I think some of us realize that it is a, a social justice issue. For starters, she's hoping her parents can successfully quit. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Joining me now from Princeton, New Jersey, is Professor Keith Waylu, who you just heard in John's story. He's the author of Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette. Professor Waylu, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your book explores this topic in depth. What is the untold story of the menthol cigarette? So we're talking about brands like Cool, Salem, and Newport. The untold story is a story that's revealed when you look behind the curtain at industry, tobacco industry documents, which is available now because of lawsuits that were filed by states like Colorado Mm. uh, back in the 1990s to make visible what the strategies of creating markets were. And these documents reveal how cigarettes in general, but how the menthol cigarette went from being a niche product in the 1920s and 30s, marketed deceitfully as a kind of health cigarette. It's not to booming as a new kind of brand in the 50s, right around the time that cigarettes were being linked to cancer. So this industry sort of realized that menthols and filtered cigarettes had a so-called health appeal. And then the, the untold story tells how the industry pivoted in the 1960s 
to what one company called Poverty Markets, um, an incredibly successful set of tactics that targeted Black communities ultimately in the 1960s, but others as well. Mm. So the untold story is, you know, in some ways a, a crooked kind of meandering path that this particular product has taken into Black communities. And the other thing I'd say is that the untold story is about the kind of alliances and partners that the industry needed to win over to pay in order to maintain a hold on the Black community, to defend its right to advertise aggressively. It's uh, a story that is surprising because of the strange bedfellows that have been produced across the way. And then finally, it's about the way in which the story unraveled, starting in the 1980s and 90s, amidst public health criticism, community activism that puts us where we are now, which is on the cusp of actually banning this type of product. And this was a sophisticated and far-reaching marketing campaign, and it included high-profile persuaders or influencers, as we'd call them today, right? That's right. Um, You know, even back in the 40s and 50s, but certainly in the 60s, the industry realized that a campaign to be successful, needed insiders to really win. And so they built relationships with black uh, magazines like Ebony Magazine, which I read when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, which relied heavily on tobacco advertisements for revenue, proudly so. And so the industry relied also on people on the street handing out free samples. I mean, because one of the things they needed to do is to convince people that the menthol appeal was coming organically from the city. So black publishers, black politicians who were supported through campaign donations and who remained as a result silent over these trends and black civil rights groups like for a period of time, the NAACP, which decided to side with the industry in its advertising tactics as opposed to siding against Mm. the industry in the name of the health and well-being of black communities. So it's a story of strange and unlikely bedfellows um, that have allowed the industry to continue these tactics successfully for decades. Well, I, too, grew up reading Ebony, Jet, and some of the magazines that I'm sure you're referring to. And you say you experienced some of the intense industry marketing of these products while growing up. Tell us about that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the Bronx and Queens, New York in the 1970s, the era of, you know, Superfly, the movie, Curtis Hmm. Mayfield's hit, Freddy's Dead, you know, uh, the age of what was called black exploitation films. But little did I know that I was surrounded by black exploitation in the advertisements as well. These magazines, billboards proliferating, saturating New York City buses, subways, street corners, highways, you know, those waterfall images. We don't see them anymore because they've been banned, right? But um, showing smooth-looking Black men and women, groups having fun while smoking. So I grew up around this. And what I didn't realize at the time and what the research I did in this book allowed me to see is that none of this was accidental. That is, the industry studied, you know, the tens of thousands of people who viewed any particular billboard, and they tracked its implications for advertising buying. They studied messaging. And, you know, when my family moved from the Bronx and Queens to a suburb in New Jersey, suddenly, gee whiz, 
no billboards anywhere. Mm. Right. You know, suburban America zones against billboards. Um, but if I walk down the street to Newark, there they were back again in this area that one company regarded as one of the leading poverty markets for cigarettes. So it's this kind of geographical and racial disparity that I grew up in. And what I didn't realize at the time is that this was relatively new. That is, after Congress banned television and radio ads, this is when, right around the time, you know, 1970, this is when I was growing up and the industry began to double down on this tactic of billboarding, going closer and closer to communities, building the world that I grew up in. And this played out over decades. What impact did it have for consumption, for the industry, and for health? Yeah, it it did play out over decades, and it changed because the industry, you know, they were doing studies of urban life. They did the studies of black life and well-being. Um, the tactics that they used, just let me give you an example. In 1967, Black St. Louis hmm. is that they studied how black men influenced other black men, like who followed whom. And uh, there's a document that that shows that they were studying what they called um, local influencers like barbers and bellhops and taxi drivers and bartenders and numbers runners. And they said, these are the people, these are the kingfish of the community. And to build a new product's following, you need to put into their hands what they called boast material, things that, you know, free samples that they could hand out. And this is how you build a following. But they also said, you can't make it look like this is coming from us, from elsewhere. It has to look like it's just, you know, coming from these people, these people who were admired, who want mm. to, who were seeking status. And that's how you build a product. And so these strategies of, you know, creating the image of like credibility and authenticity is what has led to, you know, generations of young people smoking, cancer, heart disease, lung disease, and a host of other illnesses. And for many years, the industry denied, right, whether or not there was a linkage between smoking and these forms of illness. They employed traditional tactics like denial, but also muddying the discussion by saying, you know, there's not enough evidence to prove this, or it's not cigarettes that causes lung cancer, it's air pollution. But, you know, gradually the evidence built up to the extent that by the late 1980s, by the mid-1980s, you have lawsuits being brought against the industry for the years of deceit. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the tipping point was when states like Colorado and others sued the industry. And they sued the industry to recover the cost of caring for sick people, which was falling on state budgets, right? Mm. Uh, states were paying larger and larger Medicaid costs to take care of the people who smoked and who were deceived into smoking by accepting what the industry said, which was that it was safe. So this is what prompted state lawsuits in the late 1990s. And it's not unlike what we see with lawsuits against the makers of opioids and settlements, right? Which mm. is 
the evidence, you know, that the states themselves are bearing the burden of the deceit, of the push, of the harm that's inflicted by this product. And in some ways, the cigarette led the way to what we're experiencing now with the opioid crisis. It's the same kind of process. So the impact has been truly devastating. And it's really time for this particular product, which was has been a flavored cigarette that's an on-ramp to smoking, to be really removed from the market. Now, you've mentioned documents and that you've learned much of this from digging into these documents, like the kind mentioned in John Daly's report. Tell us more about these documents. Yeah, the the documents themselves are a way of pulling back the curtain and getting into the back rooms of decision makers, of consultants, of social scientists who studied things like smoker psychology and who taught the industry how to influence behavior. This is all not just all coming from a company. It's coming from a web of marketing consultants and others. And they were studying you know, behavioral psychology before it was an academic field. They were studying black life. They were studying masculinity. For instance, they were you know, thinking about how to rebrand what had been a feminine cigarette, Marlboro, as a masculine cigarette in the 1950s. Wow. Um, they were thinking about market segmentation. And so at a time in the 50s, you know, there was this niche product, menthol, and with the industry referred to as the cancer scare, as if it was a psychological problem, was really causing turmoil in people's smoking behaviors. And people were quitting. So at the time, when people were worried about cancer, what the industry realized is that filtered cigarettes and menthol, which had always had this deceitful idea of therapy. After all, when you have menthol going around your throat and your nose, it gives you the feeling of airways being opened, right? Everybody knows what that feeling is. And the industry had long promoted this as a, a kind of a decongestant cigarette, a health cigarette. You know, makers of Cool, you know, had an ad where they said, you know, Willie the Penguin, the cartoon figure said, when April showers make you cough like crazy, refreshing cools taste fresh as a daisy. Mm. So there was always this. And so what the industry did was they leaned heavily in the 1950s into this health appeal. And so the documents help you to understand how the industry was tracking anxiety and concerns about health, and then tailoring the menthol cigarette to project the idea of safety. And this is just one among many documents that give you a sense of the intricate way in which markets get built and sustained. And it's not the case that people have a love of menthol or a desire for menthol what they realized is that people wanted safety. They wanted health. And we could promise them that, even if ultimately we can't deliver. Wow. I'm actually speechless by this information. But in your book, you spotlight a skit from 2004 from the comedian Dave Chappelle show on Comedy Central. It plays on the stereotype that Black Americans like to smoke menthols. We have a clip here. Let's set this up. So in the skit, Chappelle is the host of a fictitious show called I Know Black People. He puts the contestants' knowledge of African-American culture to the test. Why do black people love menthols so much? 
I don't, I don't know. Uh, that is correct. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Because that's what Newports are. That is correct. Uh, is it a fact that they uh, like menthol cigarettes? I'm not even sure. Um, I don't know. The great. That taste? is correct. <laughs> no one knows. There, Chappelle is saying nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure. In your view, how does this comedy sketch speak to why this topic is so important? Yeah. Well, it's a funny skit. Uh, let's just start there. Uh, it's a 20-year-old skit. It's early Chappelle. And it fits a narrative, a narrative that the industry loves. And that is that there's some kind of special affinity, special love of menthol in black smokers, that it's a mystery, a pull that originates from within black people. Um, and as a result, you know, if you believe that, you believe then it's an authentic taste preference. And that's what the industry worked really, really hard to generate, notwithstanding all of the tactics they were using to help to create that market. But if you were to say something like this to a tobacco executive in, say, 1960 or even 1963, like there's a special affinity between black people and menthol, they would laugh. They would laugh you out of the room because everybody knew that menthols appeal to people who were worried about their health, looking for that feeling of safety who were squeamish. In fact, they thought that menthols appealed more to women. And in fact, Salem's tilted white and female, whereas Cool's tilted ultimately back into the 1960s, black and male. But it took a lot of hard work to make that happen. And it wasn't a pull. It was a push, right? And just to be clear, you know, 30% of all smokers prefer menthols. And really, it's of African-American smokers, upwards of 80% prefer menthols. If you do the math, there are more white menthol smokers in America than black menthol smokers. So it's th there's this kind of nice narrative that's being produced. It would make as much sense to say that OxyContin is a specific taste preference in communities where opioid addiction has thrived. Mm. Like, you know, we live in an era when a host of organizations, we know, drug firms, marketers, management consulting firms, pharmacies, pill mills have been charged or settled for their roles in the massive and profitable push of OxyContin and painkillers. Menthols are no different, right? In fact, the industry wrote the book on the push, and they wrote the book on how to make it look like there's no push, like there is this pull. But just like OxyContin, it would be ridiculous if you said, you know, there's some special affinity between opioid users and opioid that explains and legitimates addiction. Mm. Now, speaking of statistics, here's some telling statistics. Today, black smokers consume menthols at much higher rates than whites. In the 50s, less than 10% of black smokers use menthol cigarettes. Today, it's 85%. And that's had a huge impact on the health of black Americans. Black Americans have the highest death rate and shortest survival rate of any racial or ethnic group in the U.S. for most cancers. What has been the industry's reaction to your book and more specifically to this notion that these companies directly and deliberately marketed these products or pushed cool, as your book title says, to black people? 
So I haven't seen any industry reaction, and I wouldn't expect it. And and that's because the evidence is fairly clear, and the information in the book comes, as I mentioned, directly from them. That is to say, it's a portrait of the world that they saw as they saw it. The terms like poverty markets or exploitation or secret influencers, those are their terms, right? Mm. Um, and here's a good example. So when they used the tactics of creating markets on college campuses, it was in the 50s, it was free samples, paid representatives, influencers, advertising, raffles, coupons, giveaways, promotions. And when the regulators in the 50s began to look askance at what was being done on college campuses and accused the industry of trying to recruit young smokers and threatened them with regulations, the industry pulled out. And that's when they pivoted to cities using exactly the same strategies and tactics, free samples, paid representatives, influencers, advertising, raffles, giveaways, promotion campaigns, NAACP fashion shows, sponsoring sports events, the cool jazz festivals. So, you know, the book really just documents it's a it's a business history. It's a history of how the business worked. I'll give you one really disturbing example. In 1965 when the famous singer Nat King Cole died from lung cancer, an avid and really relentless smoker. His death was covered, his illness and his death was covered by Ebony Magazine, which, as I mentioned, uh, accepted lots of revenue from the tobacco industry to advertise menthol cigarettes. Mm. When he died, um, when the final story on his death was published in the magazine, and in fact, most of the stories about his illness, none of them mentioned his smoking. It was wow. kept completely out of the discussion. And whereas other magazines pointed out the, the linkage between his lifelong smoking and his lung cancer, in the same issue, there are four advertisements for menthol brands. A few years later, one of the companies was thinking about a new way to brand a menthol to appeal to black people. And I'll read what they wrote. This ad executive says, I believe the name Cole would be immediately accepted by the blacks as a new brand. As the first thought comes to mind would be Nat King Cole, whose name is highly revered among blacks and whites. The response from another executive was, if there is a competent black advertising agency, I would give them the account, the promotional possibilities of marketing a brand named Cole, particularly in the black markets, would be boundless. Wow. As I say in the book, the suggestion went nowhere in the company. No doubt somebody pointed out that Nat King Cole's widow had sued the cigarette producers after his death, resulting in a rumored settlement. So this is exactly what the book shows, is the kind of the backroom thinking about how you take something and you brand it as black in order to help build markets, even though that very branding resulted in the death of Nat King Cole. Wow, that's amazing. I'm thinking about a singer who obviously needs their lungs to to even yeah. produce, you know, the the notes. And I, I actually never knew that's how he died, to yep, your point. Yep. You know, there's a moment in the book when a chief executive of one of the companies is put on the stand in a case in 2000 where a smoker is seeking to hold the industry accountable for deceitful advertising. 
And the industry is handed one of these memos that I talk about in the book. And what's interesting is that even this executive disowns it as a reprehensible idea, the one about like handing out free samples in black St. Louis to build following from uh, the bottom up. He calls it totally inappropriate. He calls it reprehensible. But he also says, I have no idea what those folks were doing back then, right? As if to say, you know, that's then and this is now. It's reprehensible and we don't claim it. So it's a good example of how when when you have an industry official that's actually looking at the history and saying, I regard that as reprehensible, it's not as if you know industry officials are now going to look at a book like this and say, that's not us, because they basically say, yeah, that's what we did. Now, your book spotlights this broader issue by talking about all of this within the context of the expression I can't breathe, which is a hallmark of our era. Please explain that. Well, when I was finishing the book, George Floyd was tragically murdered in Minneapolis, choked to death by policemen who is now in prison, and uttering the same plea, I can't breathe, as Eric Garner had when he too was strangled by a policeman in Staten Island, New York. And what I argue when I look at these two stories, menthol and police killing, is that menthols are a culprit. That is to say, they have participated in the story, the long and sordid and sad story that leads to I Can't Breathe. Let me explain. There are people paid by tobacco interests today who are arguing that if menthols are banned, young black men will be subject to policing for smoking bootleg menthols and subjected to therefore more violence and death. And then they evoke Eric Garner and George Floyd as like, you know, we'll have more of that, but they have it wrong. I see what they're doing because we've seen this before. They're using a legitimate civil rights issue, concern about discrimination, racism, policing, inappropriate policing to help support the industry's right to sell and continue exploitation. So sadly, this is a familiar playbook. But they have it wrong for another reason. As I say in the book, menthols are implicated in the long extraction of health and wealth from Black people and Black communities, and also from the health and wealth of all smokers. Menthols are, as I document in this book, part of the history of very shrewd predation and inequity. They're part of the history of how you devastate the lungs, how you cripple the health and well-being of Black people, ending tragically also in the plea, I can't breathe because of lung cancer, lung pathology, cardiovascular disease. The difference is that the people responsible for the tobacco story, for the menthol story, are harder to see. They're not on video. Mm. Their work of extracting life and breath from Black bodies happens quietly. And you can only see it when you pull back the curtain and stitch together the chapters in the history of menthol as I do in this book. It doesn't happen over minutes. It happens over decades. It's quiet and it's devastating work, which also extracts, as I said, wealth along with health, and it leads in the same direction. It ends with, I can't breathe. It's off camera. And one of the goals of the book that I have is to put it on stage so we can see this for what it is. So really about premature death. Yep. 
I couldn't agree more. Okay, let's talk about where we are today. After more than a decade studying it, in 2022, the FDA proposed regulations to prohibit menthol in part because of the impact that flavored tobacco has had on the lives of those in the Black community, as well as legions of young people. And it's been getting heavy pressure and lobbying to reverse course from industry and some in the Black community, like the Reverend Al Sharpton, who oppose it. Then just last month, the White House delayed issuing the final ruling, but that could be revisited. Well, the tide has turned against the industry and its tactics, I'd say, since about the 1990s. And in some ways, they, they're continuing to fight to hold on to a very, very lucrative product, a flavored cigarette that has been an on-ramp to smoking for generations of people. And, you know, in 2009, flavored cigarettes were banned by Congress, but the industry was successful in holding up menthol, and menthols were exempted in that legislation. And that question of what to do about menthols was kicked over to the Food and Drug Administration, which is why we're having this discussion in the first place. In fact, 2009 was a, a hugely consequential year because in that legislation, the Food and Drug Administration was given authority over tobacco products for the first time in history, which wow. is really remarkable. The idea that you know the power of the industry was such that tobacco was seen as neither food nor drug and beyond FDA regulation. So given the authority to decide what to do with menthols for the first time in 2009, the industry tried once and they were pushed back on technical issues and concerns raised by the industry. And then Scott Gottlieb, uh, Trump's FDA commissioner, tried again in 2018. And so this is easily the third time in 2002 that the FDA announced that it was going to move forward. It's been frustratingly slow, but the weight of science and public health evidence recommend a ban. And what's left for the industry is to engage in sort of politics. And this is a familiar playbook, right? To, as I've said before, find and pay supporters in the Black community, people who have a record of speaking on behalf of the well-being of Black communities. And uh, whether it's Nat King Cole or Benjamin Hooks, who in the 1980s uh, was the executive director of the NAACP and defended the industry's right to aggressively market in Black communities, whether it was Uptown Cigarette, which is a particularly notorious story about targeted advertising in Black Philadelphia, or the prevalence of Black billboards, billboards in Black neighborhoods. So the industry has always been able to do that. And we're in a similar situation right now. These folks give the industry cover, and the industry has been very good at latching onto hot-button issues to defend this very lucrative product. When indoor smoking was banned, there were cries of racism from tobacco supporters, you know, but we should see it for what it is. Like if your doctor or a community leader was being paid by opioid manufacturers to sing the praises of opioids and to distract from the opioid crisis, we wouldn't give them the time of day. We would see them for what they are, right? Paid supporters. Mm. And so not surprisingly, when the NAACP stopped taking tobacco money, they began very thankfully, speaking frankly about the dangers of menthol, the dangers of menthol as a lure for kids in particular, and the long-term health implications. So that's where we are today. Would you say that this latest effort to prohibit menthol 
underscores the themes of your book. And what do you think the outcome will mean for communities here in Colorado and around the U.S. that have been disproportionately impacted? Yeah, I mean, I I have to say that as somebody who studies the past, uh, you know, you study the past not to learn just what happened, but to prepare for the present and the future. And so what is going on right now is in some ways a new but also familiar chapter in the long and meandering history of menthol cigarette, which started as a deceptive product promising health, promising to open your airways, to free yourself of congestion but producing over the long haul just the opposite, right? It was all deceptive. The book shows what the industry knew, how it built market, built markets, and how it more than building markets, how it defended markets by finding, you know, voices within communities who would call out those who are speaking in the name of advancing the public health. I don't know how this story is going to play out. I'm hopeful that whatever's behind the current delay will ultimately be resolved and the industry will move forward because, of course, the science and the public health speak very certainly about what needs to happen next, which is the finalization of this ban. But even if the ban is finalized, industry will find other ways to try to move around it, to skirt the technicalities of the ban, because history shows us that this is also part of the toolkit of the industry. For instance, they're already experimenting with artificial menthol-like flavoring to try to dodge the language of banning menthols. Mm. Another tactic they're trying is to, you know, technically a ban is about characterizing flavors. That is, flavors that are distinctive enough to be sort of characterizing qualities of a cigarette. Cigarettes have lots of other flavors in them. If all flavors were banned in cigarette products, I doubt that people actually would like cigarettes very much. So what the industry is experimenting with is how do you lower menthol-like flavoring enough to make the argument that it's no longer a characterizing flavor in order to dodge the ban? These are all familiar tactics. You know, when television ads were banned, The industry tried to get around it by advertising on the fences around playing fields at televised ballgames where Mm. the cameras would catch the ad and the industry, the regulators had to step in again. So, you know, vigilance is what's necessary for the next step, even if there is a ban, because you know that there will be legal challenges and there'll be efforts to kind of skirt a ban on menthol, because this has been an enormously profitable product for the industry. I want to end by sort of evoking one community activist, a guy named Henry McNeil, Henry McNeil Brown in Chicago in the 1980s, 1990s, that really started to defend the health and well-being of his community by doing something illegal. He was whitewashing and blackwashing billboards that were proliferating in the city because he felt that what these billboards did and what the industry did was they tried to package the image of being champions of the downtrodden, the image of credibility, when they were really the pushers of drugs of illusion, which had the side effect, he said, of diminishing opportunities for real success. And I think that that's the spirit that I think we'll all need, not the spirit of vandalism, but the spirit of vigilance, and watchfulness for what 
the next chapter in the menthol cigarette will be even after a ban. Wow. Very eye-opening report. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Princeton University Professor Keith Waylu, author of Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette, which explores the backstory of how, for decades, menthol cigarettes were disproportionately marketed to members of the Black community and young people, with major public health consequences that continue today. Black Americans have the highest death rate and shortest survival rate of any racial or ethnic group in the U.S. for most cancers. Tobacco use is the number one cause of preventable death in the black community, killing 45,000 black Americans each year. Research has shown that black Americans have a harder time quitting smoking and die at higher rates from tobacco-related diseases like cancer, heart disease, and stroke. Our thanks to CPR health reporter John Daly for this segment. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Is that old car of yours taking up valuable space? Free up some room and make a difference by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is safe and easy. You just have to find the title and the keys and we'll handle the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Fuel the news and music you rely on by donating your car. Find out how on the support page at CPR.org. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Finally today, what if there were a pill you could take to ease heartbreak? It's something researchers are working on, and it's one of the fascinating threads in a book called Heartbreak by Colorado science writer Florence Williams. Williams also asks, is it medically possible to die from a broken heart? And she explores why beauty can help us bounce back from a breakup. It really blew me away, this advice I got that I had never heard before, that we can find resilience in beauty. And that if we can learn to cultivate beauty, um, we can become more resilient. Williams will join Ryan next week in Loveland as we record an episode of our book series, Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. We'll be at the historic Rialto Theater in downtown Loveland on Wednesday, February 7th, and you're invited. There's still time to read the book Heartbreak by Florence Williams. But even if you don't read it, it promises to be an insightful and engaging evening. Tickets are available at CPR.org slash turn the page. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Molly Cruz. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. Oh, yeah.